I think that's like the most critical worldly material thing that we can face right now. Like we really have to get the mainstream culture to gravitate towards kindness and compassion. And so this is just, it's definitely one way of doing it. Hello, yogis. Hello, friends. And welcome back to another episode of Dharma Talk. I'm your host, Henry Winslow, and this is episode number 38. For those of you who celebrated Thanksgiving last week, I hope you had a great time with your families. I hope you had some rest and relaxation. And for my listeners outside the U.S., I guess I have no excuse for taking the week off. So I appreciate you coming back nonetheless. Before we dive into this week's episode, I just want to say thank you to Meta Emily Herborg for making a donation to Dharma Talk. I'm so grateful every time one of you makes a donation because it tells me that this podcast is really moving people and it's worth continuing to put the work in. So if anyone else would like to make a donation, that's always doable on my website, henrywins.com, or you can also get there at dharmatalk.show. Okay, now about today's episode. It's only fitting that after a holiday week all about eating and gathering around food, that today I bring on a guest who um, is doing just that every day of his life. My guest this week is Adam Sobel, who is a yoga student and teacher and also the founder, chef, and owner of The Cinnamon Snail which is a vegan food truck and restaurant based in New York and New Jersey. We talk about lots of different things in this conversation, not just related to vegan food, also about yoga practice, but a few of the things that you can expect if you listen through are how and why Adam became a father, a student of a particular lineage of yoga, and a vegan all around the same time. We also talk about drawing healthy boundaries between running a food business and maintaining a dedicated yoga practice. He shares what he has learned from working in gray legality and black markets to provide mainstream culture with delicious ethical food. And lastly, on a totally different topic, we discuss duality, non-duality, and the middle road and examining these philosophical concepts through asana practice. So definitely a wide-ranging conversation. I really enjoyed it, and I hope you do too, but definitely, definitely stick around through the end and listen to the Pranaround, probably one of my favorite set of answers since starting this show. So after these announcements, please stick around, and we'll dive into this interview with Adam Sobel. California friends, I am headed your way and very excited to be teaching a backbending workshop at YogaWorks Costa Mesa on Sunday, December 9th. That's Orange County, Southern California. If you can't come, send me a message. Maybe we can meet up for a class or something. For my friends here in New York, I've got a workshop at the end of January at Three Jewels. So details for all my events upcoming and to be planned are at henrywinds.com slash events. Go there and sign up. At Lighthouse Yoga School in Brooklyn, New York, we are currently enrolling our next 200-hour teacher training for January 2019. So yoga teachers looking to level up your teaching, aspiring yoga teachers who want to do your first training, or 
yoga students who just want to take their practice a little bit deeper. You can get more information about that also at henrywins.com slash events. And if you apply now using my referral code, henrywins, you'll save $100 on your tuition. There's no fee to apply. So go ahead, put your application in, drop the referral code and lock in $100 off. What's your purpose? What's your vision? What mark will you leave on this planet long after you're gone? I'm Henry Winslow, and you're listening to Dharma Talk, the only podcast where I interview inspirational yogis on how they're changing the world in their own unique ways. Whether you're still searching for your purpose or already walking the path, I hope these stories get you excited to live your dharma. Hello, Dharma Talk community, and welcome back to another episode. Today, I am chatting with Adam Sobel. Adam has been teaching free yoga classes for the last 15 years to a dedicated Sangha of yogis in New Jersey. He spent 16 years studying with Sri Dharma Mitra and has been studying exclusively with Gokula Khandra Das for the past three years. Additionally, he is the chef and owner of The Cinnamon Snail, a vegan food truck thingy and restaurant. <laughs> and along with his family, he also rehabilitates wounded and abandoned wild animals to give them a better shot at survival. Adam, I understand you're walking through the woods right now with some animals of your own. Um, so how are you doing Yeah, me, me and my dogs. I'm doing amazing. Uh, yeah, it's, it's just raining out here in the woods and I'm really, uh, it's kind of, like I try to get out into nature at least once or twice a week to kind of recharge myself. It's, it's nice. Yeah. So if the rain short circuits our conversation, uh, I accept no liability for any damages and I hope that everyone still enjoys the show. Yeah. Let's we do all, it. Let's do it. I always ask the same first question. So we'll start with that. What does the word Dharma mean to you and what is your Dharma as you understand it today? Okay, uh, that's a good question. So, um, I mean, Dharma, like in the in the scope of like Vedic literature, uh, really means like spiritual duty, um, not just like worldly material duty. Um, so I, I think sometimes it gets like misrepresented that way that it's like, oh, I'm a chef, so that's my Dharma. <laughs> um, but it's really like a more eternal thing that's, you know, that you maintain whatever your like material position in reality is. So um, like ultimately I would take it that all living entities have the same Dharma, which is like transcendental to material reality that we're trying to like serve the Supreme Mm -hmm. and serve each other. And so, so ultimately like that's my Dharma and I, I try to do it through uh, serving my guru and, also through um, doing whatever I can to um, help uh, decrease like unnecessary violence and suffering in, in the world. Mm-hmm. So a lot of that I do like through um, through what I do for work, like trying to help more people get turned on to a nonviolent way of eating. And uh, to me, that has like a very direct impact on um, other living creatures like not getting eaten. So yeah, yeah, it's, it's kind of, absolutely. I mean, I totally hear what you're saying and I agree with you that 
underneath it all, we've all got the same duty. We do. We all are here to serve one another. And I think, you know, it's, it's always easier with just the way that our mind works to pick apart things and compartmentalize our spiritual duty versus our material or physical duty. But, you know, that it's kind of two sides of the same coin, really. If, if you are doing something of material purpose that's aligned with that spiritual, spiritual purpose, then it all works. And you see, certainly seem to have found a way to um, put your physical body into work that is in support of what you believe in. So let's let's talk For a little sure. bit about it's, that. It's very gratifying. Yeah. What's um? So what's up with the cinnamon snail? For those of the listeners who have never heard of it, maybe you can give us okay. a, a basic yeah, overview sure. of it. Sure. So um, basically, like the cinnamon snail is is a, a restaurant and, and food truck and catering business I started back in 2010. Um, I'd been in restaurants for a while and really felt like a lot of the people who at that time were going into vegan and vegetarian restaurants were like already vegan or very open-minded to it. And I really wanted to bring excellent quality vegan food out onto the street where people who might have like a stigma against going into a vegan restaurant would just see, you know, this pastry case full of really yummy pastries and like hopefully a really long line down the block and just check it out. And so I, I really tailored it and the menu to be um, vegan food that's like very approachable and enjoyable and understandable for people who don't necessarily give a shit about vegan food so that uh, I can lure them to the dark side through yummy pastries and (laughs) sandwiches and whatnot. So you are not only the the founder or the, the kind of visionary behind it, but you also do a lot of the cooking. Yeah, as the chef, did you have a background yeah, in I've, that before you started? I've created all the recipes, and yeah, I, I'd worked in restaurants for maybe about a dozen years before I started the business, and um, I really got turned on to vegan cooking when I met Joey, who's my wife, and I was like a teenager at the time, and she was the first vegan person I had gotten very close with, and I really respected and admired her like the ethics behind why she was vegan. You know, she was really doing it for, you know, reducing violence towards animals and caring about uh, the environment. And, uh, but she was eating the worst vegan diet. It was like French fries and canned soup all the time. So I really wanted to learn how to cook so I could make her extra yummy food. And in doing that, like I started working in restaurants and then people would come into the restaurants like the first restaurant I was working at was kind of a, a non-veg fine dining restaurant. And people would come in and try to modify menu items to make them vegetarian or vegan. And the other cooks there would always kind of be real snarky about it. And I kept finding myself like sort of standing up for these people who were coming in. And finally, one of the other cooks was like, Adam, if you care about this so much, like, why aren't you vegetarian? And I was like, yeah, you're you're right. I don't know. So I became vegetarian. And then about a year or so later, um, when our first daughter was born, I became vegan. Like the day she was born, I had thought so much about um, how important like nursing would be for our daughter and 
like both physically and spiritually and emotionally and how understanding how really sacred and special that is. I, I really couldn't justify standing in the way of that for any other living creature. And so that day I became a dad and I became vegan and it was, uh, yeah, also like right around that time is when we started practicing with Dharma Mitra, like a couple of weeks after she was born. Um, and now, now that same daughter is like, she's 17 and she is, um, currently out in Bali assisting Gokul Chandra, um, teach a, uh, a yoga teacher training out there. Amazing. So it's, it's been really cool to like, basically my life in yoga and in veganism has gone right along with hers. So we kind of both had like the same start on that stuff. Yeah. 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 So has she been vegan her entire life then? Yeah, she yeah, both her kids have been vegan their entire life and she's she's particularly like kind of badass about it, like really into activism and um like you mentioned in the intro, like especially my family, less so myself because I work quite a bit, but my daughter and, and my daughters and wife um all all do like a lot of wildlife rehabbing, like baby raccoons and squirrels and stuff will get calls and they will have been abandoned or the mom will have gotten hit by a car and they're, they're very helpless. And so, um, we like nurse them to the point they can be released back into the wild. And, um, so now my, my older daughter, Edel, who, um, has also been like homeschooled her whole life has, um, done, taken her GED and is starting, um, to work on, on like a degree in like veterinary stuff. So, it's kind of exciting. Yeah, she's really leaned into it and and make it made it her own rather than yeah. I don't know. Sometimes you think like as a parent. Um, I mean, I'm not a parent myself, so I can't speak on this with firsthand experience. But you see children often going the total opposite direction of their parents because there's like this hardwired nature in us to rebel. But um, if you can really connect to what your parents teach you in a way that feels personal, then there's nothing to rebel against, I suppose. Yeah. Well, she does rebel by listening to like really hideous pop music and that's kind of her <laughs> revenge on us, I guess. But, uh, At yeah, full blast. They're, yeah, yeah. They're both, they're both really sweet girls and I feel really blessed that I've got really easy and pleasant kids to be around. Yeah. Yeah. So you've mentioned the, um, the rehabilitation for the animals and lots of the ways that you've thought about the yogic ideals and, and influencing the way that you live your life. But I'm also curious, what does your explicit, you know, for lack of a better word, yoga practice look like? You studied with Dharma Mitra for many years. Now you're studying with Gokula Khandra. How has your practice evolved over time to meet the needs and problems, questions in your life? Um, so, I guess like in, in its current state, my sadhana is, um, I think it, it's kind of a, a nice mix of, um, everything that's important to me. So I, I practice like about an hour and a half to two hours of asana a day. Um, usually quite early in the morning because of my working schedule, I'll typically get up at like 4am and, um, I start the day with like a puja. And then I practice asana. You, like where we live, we have a wood-burning stove in our home, and I usually kind of crank that up because I like to 
really sweat when I practice. Um, and I, I really stick very strictly to the method that we've been studying with Gokulakandra. Um, it's really kind of blown my mind and we can get into that a little more later, but then, um, throughout the day I do like quite a lot of japa. Um, I probably do about two and a half to three hours of japa every day. Um, and then, uh, I always do some kind of swadhyaya, like some, um, study of the scriptures. So I typically read, um, like about a chapter of the Srimad Bhagavatam every day and reflect upon it. And, um, right now I'm also reading the Chaitanya Mangala, which is also really interesting scripture. Um, but yeah, that, that study of the scripture to me is like very, um, like important part of my sadhana. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's, I'm... that's kind of what it looks like now. And it's, it's changed a lot to get to that point. Um, like for many years when I was, um, practicing with Dharma, I would, I would almost exclusively just like take his classes as my sadhana. And I wasn't really doing a lot outside of that, um, as far as study or meditation or, um, anything. Mm-hmm. And it, it was, uh, you know, I'm very grateful for the, the time I spent with, with Dharma. And I think, uh, it was like a very good preparation for studying with Gokul Kantra. Um, yeah, but it's it's like almost a completely, in some ways, like polar opposite type of practice. So, it's uh, it's been an interesting thing to like change and evolve towards. Yeah. So, I mean, your teacher at this point is not in the same local vicinity as you. What does it yeah. what does it mean to you to study under him with him? So uh, I get to study with him like a few times a year. Um, we just helped assist him in, in teaching uh, a teacher training in New Jersey like a month or so back. And then, you know, we we assisted and took some workshops with him while he was in the U.S. Um, and then, like, my wife and, and daughters are are assisting him with two trainings, right, like one right now and one next month in, uh, in Malaysia. And then I'll be meeting them in Malaysia for a training with him in January and then we'll, we'll travel to India with him, um, to like visit some holy places. But actually like in, in some ways, like his, the practice he's been teaching us is like so deep and requires so much like very attentive practice and like listening and, and watching what's really occurring that I I feel like it's kind of, uh, I don't know. It's, it's kind of like, uh, this is such a bad example, but like, if you ever ingested DMT in your life, it's not something you want to do every single day. It's like really a very full on and challenging mental and emotional experience. And you kind of need to like take some time to digest it and think about it. And like in the same way, like I, I certainly would love to be practicing with Gokul every single day, but um, having you know, months in between that I'm practicing every day and really observing attentively, like the effects of the bandhas and marmas and the way I practice. And, mm-hmm. uh, it, it really makes it so that the few times a year that I can go back and spend another month with him or whatever. Um, like, it's like, I'm really doing my homework in the meantime. And it's, yeah. I, I really like it. I don't feel like I don't feel in that way that I'm like without him the rest of the year. I, I really, I really pay attention to 
what he's trying to teach us. And um, I also like um, when I train with him, I tend to make a lot of audio recordings of him, which I listen to. Um, and cause some of it's just like super technical and, um, you'll be like, yeah. wait, what did he say about that? Like one particular state of Samadhi, how's it go? So it's nice to be able to refer to that sometimes. Yeah, I can, I can totally see what you mean by that. I mean, I'm for sure still unpacking the density of the information that he shared at, at lighthouse where, where we met at, during those yeah, um, yeah. four, four back-to-back workshops. And I also see what you mean by the um, the attention that's required to really practice this. I mean, you have to start at a very cerebral level to even figure out where these marma points are, how they're pulling apart, how they're pulling back in. And that takes practice before it becomes more integrated and internalized, and you're even ready to layer on another piece of information. So it's cool that you've worked yeah, out a schedule where you can kind of like meet with him every couple of months. Yeah, I, I wish it was every couple months, but it's, it's a few times a year at least. Yeah, um, sure. So yeah, that's it's nice. And then these the scripture readings that you talk about, the Svadaya. I'm uh-huh. not familiar with either of those texts that you mentioned. Um, is that something that you um, learned from previous study or something that Gokula Khandra put you onto? Uh, well, I mean, it, they're definitely scriptures that are like attached to the, the lineage he comes from. Um, which is like Gaudiya Vaishnavism. Um, but but the Srimad Bhagavatam, which is it's also sometimes called the Bhagavad Puranas, um, it's uh, it's a pretty expansive text. It's you know, it's uh, it's definitely the biggest reading project I've ever taken on in my life. Like the entirety of the scripture takes up like a shelf and a half on my bookcase. So wow. it's uh Okay. It's quite a lot wow. of a lot of reading, and it's it's really very interesting. But it's it's um it's bhakti yoga related uh-huh. scripture, and okay, it's uh it's basically like a lot of stories of like different saints who lived and how they may have risen or fallen uh, towards or from the perfection of of yoga, and mm-hmm. um, it's it's quite interesting. And then your your mantra japa practice is that connected to the scripture or separate? Uh, well, I, I chant the maha mantra, um, so I chant like uh, always, like a, a little bit more than sixteen rounds of it daily. Um, and there's like a bunch of different approaches to meditation on the mantra, and um, you know, using it to like. Uh, approach kind of different states of um, concentration and meditation and samadhi and mm-hmm. it's uh yeah it's, i i really look forward to that every day in fact like if there's ever anything i'm gonna miss out of my sadhana on any given day like maybe i won't get around to practicing asana if like it's a really crazy day but no matter what i always chant my rounds mm-hmm. yeah yeah i mean it it depends on your personal practice, of course. Everybody's different, but mantra is super powerful for getting you back into a state of peace. I mean, for me, mantra is all about connecting the subconscious and conscious mind. And it's very easy, especially, you know, if you run a business like you do, um, got a million things going on, got a family, 
to get so caught up in the logical side of the brain that you lose touch with the part of you that's that's all knowing underneath all that. So mantra is a great way to come back. Yeah, and it's it's like I think it's a very like intimate kind of practice, like especially if you take it in in like a as like a sadhana for bhakti yoga that like the the names of God are like non-different from God. And so it's like a real way to like practice some kind of devotional service that's immediate and is like very tangible. Like it, it rolls off your tongue. You like feel the effect of the sound vibration physically and emotionally and cognitively. And it's uh yeah, it's like a very, it's, it's nice. It's like a very prolonged type of devotional service. So, yeah. Good. So, how about um, at the Cinnamon Snail? What are your um, What are your employees' thoughts on your your yoga life? You know, is it something that they've integrated themselves? Are they receptive to it? Um, you know, like it's kind of changed a lot over the years. The way, um, the way I interface with like all of my staff and. But I have like a couple, I definitely have a couple of yogis and a couple of devotees who work for me. And like, I'll talk with them more about it than the rest of my staff. But in the beginning, when I was like first getting my business started, most of my staff were like friends of ours and people who practice yoga at our home regularly. And, uh, and like we would do like a puja on the food truck in the beginning of the day and stuff. And now like I've recognized it's, it's actually like a lot. It's really kind of difficult to operate a business where like everybody who works for you is also your best friend or yoga student or something. And, and, uh, it's very hard to like maintain a good relationship as a friend and as a boss at all times. So I, I'm, I'm a little bit like withdrawn on that more like intimate personal level. Like I don't really, like talk about my practice and talk about like spiritual topics so much with my staff because it's it's just like better off that way if i can kind of compartmentalize those things that makes sense how big is the company at this point uh so we have like about 50 employees Um, that's that's quite big yeah it's it's pretty big because we have a whole like production kitchen out in brooklyn and there's daytime people like making like doing prep stuff making sauces burger patties etc and then we have an overnight crew of bakers who come in and make our pastries and then we have like truck drivers who bring it from there to our locations in the, in manhattan and people who work different shifts in those locations and bookkeepers and managers and all that like really exciting fun stuff <laughs> but better better them than you right yeah i mean being like the owner of a business though like you kind of have to do whatever it takes all the time and yeah uh i definitely look forward to the day where like i don't need to own a cell phone ever again and it's kind of like there's a lot of especially with the food truck there's like non-stop different wacky emergencies to deal with and Mm. um you know my my perspective on it is like it's really a matter of life and death for animals who are otherwise going to be eaten and it makes it completely worth it for me to have a somewhat stressful uh job yeah like if that job is difficult or long hours or unpleasant or stressful for me like 
it's kind of no comparison to like some living creature who may or may not have to die. Like it's, so it's kind of a, a sacrifice I'm okay dealing mm-hmm. with for now. Right. Um, you know, I first got turned on to the cinnamon snail years ago before I had even considered um, going vegan and the food is delicious. I mean, I, I really okay. mean, I'm not, I'm not just saying that too, you know, because you're on the podcast with me. Like when I found out that you, the, you know, the person who was leading these vinyasa warm ups at the Gokula Contra workshop was the owner of the cinnamon snail. I like, I was so excited. I, I mean, I would never <laughs> doubt about it, but um, yeah, I love, I love all your food. And I think it's so important as someone who is kind of, charged with a little bit of responsibility, honestly, um, with a vegan restaurant to not isolate people. And I think that's what you guys have done so well is you make food that's not like, you know, self-righteous in any way. It's like just good food that happens to not have any animal products in it. And it's just as appealing to, you know, meat eaters, people who wouldn't make that choice because of the ethical um, issues behind it but just are looking for a good meal. And then maybe, you know, after enough contemplation and enjoying the food enough, they're like, oh, okay, I hadn't really considered that. Yeah, yeah, that, and it, it really works is why, like, I keep doing it. Like, I I still get, like, emails and meet people who are like, oh, I went vegetarian or vegan because you're a food, and it, like, really changed the way I think about animals and stuff. And, like, it, that makes it, like, that's what I really do it for you know it's really very gratifying to get to do that kind of work yeah i i can imagine um and also i I should say that um practicing with dharma mitra which you said was like right around the same timeline as when you had your your daughter and went fully vegan um he was a major influence on my decision to to cut out all the meat and dairy as well yeah yeah i i love that about him yeah uh, so have tell me about a time where it's been difficult for you with with the cinnamon snail. Um, I know that there. You uh, know, if you're at the point with 50 employees, there's definitely been a lot of times. Yeah, uh, like, I mean, tell probably, me about some of the growing probably pains. The, yeah, probably the biggest um, challenge was when we were really like exclusively running it as a food truck and had like two food trucks going throughout the city, and the city like really has kind of this very complicated relationship to street vendors and um it's it's basically like an illegal thing to do run a food truck in the city like you have to um illegally rent somebody else's permit on a black market and it's very sketchy and it's very complicated and um which is shocking because there's so many i mean there's like a prolific scene there are so many um but that's like the reason why you don't see like Starbucks food trucks in New York City. Like it, it is not technically legal to do. Uh-huh. And a lot of the people who continue to do it have like are really just like racking up tickets and tickets and tickets and are or are not paying them. But it's it's a uh, yeah, it's a quite complicated underworld. And uh, um, that's kind of why we don't still run both of our food trucks in the city on a day to day basis anymore, because it. it basically got increasingly more uh illegal and complicated to do and i was like yeah i just want to make people really yummy vegan food i'm not trying to like 
deal with the mafia once a week and have to like pay crazy fines and like even with all this nonsense you're still getting like shut down every few days you know kicked out of spots by the police it's like it's very hard to make a living selling like ethically prepared food in the first place and when you're like getting shut down in the middle of lunch and forced to find a new parking spot like every few days it, it makes it really difficult to like not lose money that way so it's it's definitely been like there's been a lot of um things that have like forced me to become somewhat more savvy at business which is like really not my dream but it's like again it's like it's a sacrifice i'm willing to make because it's really um directly um helping the culture gravitate towards nonviolence, and that's i think that's like the most critical like worldly material thing that we can face right now like we really have to get the mainstream culture to gravitate towards kindness and compassion and so this is just it's definitely one way of doing it and of course like people teaching and practicing yoga is like i think an even more fundamental level of it um but people got to eat no matter what so it's it's a good way to yeah maybe it's more fundamental but the way that you eat is more uh, far-reaching because everybody does it. And although yoga yeah. maybe is applicable to everyone, not everybody practices yoga. Right, right. True. Um, but yeah, that's really interesting about the the, the legality or lack thereof of, of the food truck business. Um, I remember, you know, when I was working at an office that was close to one of the regular stops that you guys had. I used to go check out on Twitter, like, oh, are they're going to post where they are. And yeah, like half the time it was like, oh, we got shut down. And I never really understood yeah. what was going on there. Um, yeah, I wrote quite a bit about it in, in the cookbook I published, like back in 2015. There's like a lot of stories about just what it's like trying to run a food truck in New York. And it's crazy. It was like I used to buy and sell drugs when I was younger and this was like way, way more shady. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so you've got the actual brick and mortar location now. That must've been a big win then. Yeah. Yeah. We've got two actually. One is uh, on the corner of 37th and uh, 33rd and 7th in the Pensy food hall. And the other one is uh, downtown on the corner of Cedar and Pearl, like down near wall street. Uh, both, both of them are in like food halls and yeah, that was, that was interesting. They were both like kind of opportunities that like fell into my lap and they really wanted us to be there. And it's been really nice to have like some stable presence in, in New York that is just running and people can't like give us parking tickets and stuff. Yeah. It's nice. So when you actually were, when you were dealing with all of that, the food truck part of it, did you see it more as just like a cost of doing business that you rack up these tickets and like you lose some customers because they were expecting you to be at X place at, at Y time? Or was it a constant source of stress at a, at a level deeper than just the finances? Uh, yeah, that's really stressful, especially when it's like people who aren't you on the food truck and they're like the police are hassling them. And like it makes it really hard to keep your staff feeling like supported and good and like their job is safe. Like it's, it is very stressful to to deal with that. And I mean, that's one of the reasons why like eventually, like I decided to stop renewing our permits and just like we run our food truck 
on like on the weekend at events and stuff and then we run our restaurants and like everything is very legitimate and like I, I that's like super stressful to be like essentially breaking the law for a living it's that wasn't that wasn't like what i set out to do with it it's just kind of there's no other option if you want to run a food truck in new york city that's just like every single cart and food truck you see is doing that same yeah thing and people are like willing to to do it and it, it is the cost of doing business like some restaurants think it's like really unfair that a food truck can just pull up and sell food but it's it's not like that there's a lot of unseen cost and and again like food trucks also need to rent a commercial kitchen like our our kitchen in brooklyn is like ten thousand dollars a month or something it's not like we don't have rent to pay yeah so there's there's kind of a lot of misconceptions about about food trucks and food vendors and so, yeah, so, so why did you go in? Why did you make the decision to do a food truck? Was it a misconception on your part as well? Or were there other factors that went into deciding to go that route? Well, you know, like I mentioned, I really wanted to make vegan food more approachable to people who wouldn't get out. Into, and at the time, like, uh, there was really no information about it. Like, I had no way to even know that in advance that that's how it was and mm. like it was kind of after we had been running our food truck a couple of years that the like real food truck um trends kind of blew up and then there were like all these hip food trucks everywhere and people writing like ebooks on how to do it and stuff uh but but when i started out like you know i'd wanted to do it actually for like seven or eight years before i actually did it because when i looked into it i was like where do i even start with this what kind of insurance do i need what kind of permits do i need like what needs to be on the food truck to like pass you know a health inspection like so there was it was kind of a lot of like having to figure it out the hard way and um yeah so i i didn't really know what i was getting into actually i was like yeah this is gonna be really like cool and flexible like i you know i'd been working in restaurants and i was just like oh yeah like you know, if I want to take the day off, no problem. I'll just like not take the truck out. And I think I had like some really, uh, idealistic idea of how it would be. And Mm -hmm. it it was still dope. Like I have no regrets about it. Um, I I was working like an insane amount, especially in the first like year and a half, I would get up at like 2am and make all our pastries and drive the truck up to Hoboken and work on it single handedly all day and bring it back and clean and prep and stuff and get maybe like three to five hours maximum and do it again the next day and I was like really burnt out but I was so psyched like it's what I really wanted to do and uh yeah let me ask you a question about that actually because yeah that that Uh makes me think like you know in the beginning and I think anyone else who starts a business of their own whether it's in the food space or not is going to come up with some degree of, of that challenge where you are the driving force behind everything that's going to happen. And yes, maybe you got people helping you, but if you don't have the willpower to keep going, then it's going to fizzle away. So as someone who created a business that's around, I mean, you're driving it, of course, and then also you have to keep it creatively fresh in order to mm-hmm have the food have the impact that you want it to, to be able to convert people into a nonviolent way of living. How do you maintain a fresh perspective, maintain your creativity when you're using every last ounce of energy just to keep the wheels turning? 
Uh, I don't know the answer to that. I, I used to drink a lot of yerba mate. I can tell you that. Uh, and uh, I don't know. I just I like to keep stuff real silly and and have fun with it. And I mean, especially if it's like your own thing, like it's kind of your choice to make it not fun if you don't want to have it be a fun time. So I, I really try to like be extra silly with our customers. Like I would make up menu items that had like really wacky names and like I still do stuff that like sometimes comes back to bite me in the ass. Um, but I just do it cause I feel like it. And like, like a, when Trump was like campaigning, we did these donuts that had like a hand decorated cookie on the top of the donut that was of Donald Trump getting punched in the face and like all the money from them went to some like immigrants rights organization. And dude, like in no time when we put that on our social media, like every Trump supporter in the galaxy was like ready to kill me and stuff. Um, but like, but do, I, but do you think that I really came back to bite to you in the ass though? I don't know. I just like, honestly, I don't care. I just, it, I wanted to do it. And, Exactly. Like I'm not. I, I I think like the consensus is like business owners like shouldn't really have an opinion about anything and certainly like not do anything that's like politically oriented and like generally I'm not a political person but I'm also like not into fascists and I'm I'm not gonna like <laughs> sit by and like watch somebody like that dick over everybody else who's like not a rich white person so yeah 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 well you know I'd. I don't think I agree with the sentiment that a business owner shouldn't take a stance on, on things because honestly, if you want to really connect with certain people, your customers, your clients, whatever, you got to be polarizing in a way that attracts them and repels the people that, you know, I don't know. It's, it's kind of a, it's a double-edged sword though, because yeah, you're I mean, also there I to kind of convert people. Yeah. And that's, that's also like the argument, like as far as like business, is concerned like you don't want to repel anybody right like you want to be able to sell vegan food to as many people as possible and there are like somehow there are uh like vegan trump supporters out there i mean dude i know like majorly pro-gun hari krishnas and stuff like there's there's a little bit of everything out there yeah um, right i'm not and i'm not i'm not like really trying to offend anyone i'm certainly not trying to like condone any actual violence like it's a fucking donut like you can't really get that upset about it it's it's like i'm not actually going up to trump and punching him in the face so like yeah. you can't really make the statement that it's like real violence like it's it's a vegan donut yeah so, yeah yeah <laughs> yeah let's let's look at the bigger picture here which which is more violent yeah um and anybody that is offended by that just needs to take a bite of the donut and enjoy yeah, people need to just chill out and eat some more donuts, but not too many donuts. Not, not yeah, that's many. that's the other thing, you know, like as a yogi, making this kind of food is like also a little bit of a challenge for me because like really the last thing I want people eating is like deep fried dough, you know, like I want people to be eating nice, like nourishing raw food and stuff. Uh -huh. But, you know, my target audience is people who are not about to get turned on to veganism by like trying a raw pizza, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. uh, you have that, to make it approachable. I, yeah, exactly. And that's, that's why I prepare the kind of food I prepare. It's like definitely more like comfort foodie and extremely flavorful. And like, 
truthfully, it's, I don't eat the food we make for, at the Cinnamon Snail like almost at all, like maybe a couple times a year. But mm-hmm. I, I eat like a pretty sattvic diet. Yeah. Well, it's not all donuts also, to be totally fair for anyone who yeah, doesn't like, yeah, yeah. come. You've got is, like savory foods is. too. Sure. But yeah, it's, it's all rich and it's all, you know, super, super tasty. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I would agree. It's comfort food. It like, it feels like you're getting hugged when you eat it. So that's Aww, nice. <laughs> that's kind of what I'm going for. Yeah. Um, okay. So why don't we... Um, I know we're kind of hopping all over the place, but you mentioned earlier that we could talk a little bit about what the physical practice that you do that you were taught from Gokula Contra looks like as to the best sure. of your ability over, over a phone call. Can you kind of take us <laughs> through that? I mean, w- walk us through what that includes. Obviously you're not going to sure. Class, so, but... so Gokula Contra teaches actually like a variety of styles, but he teaches them with the same like underlying methodology and philosophy so this same approach like he can you know he can teach you like hatha yoga or ashtanga yoga or vinyasa yoga or like what he calls slow yoga um with this same kind of underlying method and the method is largely focused on um like subtle yogic anatomy and and this is what really like blew my mind at first with him which is that like it's really about approaching and executing the postures less so from like a muscular and physical level and more so on like, like constructing the pose from the ground up, like through, um, through many, many bandhas, um, you know, which are, are like energetic locks, you can call them. Right. And, and the bandhas then have like their, building box blocks are the marmas which are kind of like um how acupuncture and acupressure have these acupressure points and that's connected to their system of meridians um so the in in yoga the marmas it's like a different energetic system and it's it's basically like the intersection of all nadis creates each each intersection has a marma so there's there's uh there's something like 8,400,000 marmas in the energetic body, um, which is, uh, anyway, so the relationship of these marmas, yeah, I know them all. No, no, but I, I wouldn't doubt that Gokul Chandra knows them all. (laughs) He really is like a a limitless kind of teacher in my experience of him. It's, it's really quite humbling to practice with him, but in any case, so, the way these marmas um, relate to one another, um, there's there's different ways to engage them into bandhas, and then there's then there's like other levels of uh, movement and relationship on this energetic body, and you use that to really like construct and refine the posture, and then um, also to make the posture like both more safe um, and to find like a deeper uh, and more correct alignment in the posture through through this kind of subtle yogic anatomy. So the the practice I practice with that methodology is is like a vinyasa system that he's taught me, and um, even like the sequencing of the poses is very much related to um, like structuring the bandhas so that they're um, 
so that they're working in a certain direction. Um, and it's, it's both like creating this reflection on like the physical apparatus of the body. And it's also, um, it, in my practice and like observation of it, like it's also kind of has a lot of parallels as a way to like explore deeper yogic philosophy through the asana, like utilizing this method of, of the bandhas and marmas. It's, it's really so? kind of a very holistic approach. How so? How, how do you connect it to the deeper philosophy? Well, so uh, without getting like too, too carried away and technical, <laughs> yeah. um, there's in, in yoga philosophy, for instance, like at least in like, yeah. So in, in yoga philosophy, like the, the dominating like basic yoga philosophy, which has come to the West is Advaita Vedanta, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's like a complete non-dualism where, uh, you know, like basically we are all one and that we're, and that ultimately like that the Atman merges into or becomes Brahman, like the formless, impersonal nature of the Supreme, right? That, right. that like ultimately in Advaita Vedanta, like we are God is kind of like the underlying philosophy and that we are all each other. And, um, so that's, that's like one yogic philosophy, right? And then, and then there's also quite a long-standing Vedic tradition of, of Dvaita, right? Like complete dualism, which is like closer to what most people are religiously familiar with is like the Abrahamic religious perspective that we're, we're entirely separate from God and that like at no time do we become God, like even if in some religions you like obtain some position in heaven, you're still like separate from the Supreme. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And then like bhakti yoga, which I think is really like, uh, it's really like the perfected stage of yoga. Like even represented in Bhagavad Gita, it's kind of like what the yoga system that the other systems build to that, that Ashtanga or Raja yoga you know, kind of builds towards karma and jnana, and that jnana yoga eventually, like, becomes bhakti yoga, and that's that's really like the that's ultimately where yoga is pointing you, in in my perspective, and in what I've been trained, you know, mm-hmm. and so bhakti yoga presents like this achintya beta beta tattva, which is kind of like. Uh, I think it's really sort of mind-blowing philosophy, which is, um, it's like inconceivable oneness and difference. Um, that it's, we're not the same as God and we're not separate from God. And, and the same with our relationship to each other. We're, we're like inconceivably one and different. We're, we're like an emanation from the Supreme, but that doesn't make us the Supreme. Like, even like the material energy of the world is, is like an emanation of God, but that doesn't mean like God is planet earth or something, or like, you know, because you are an emanation from God doesn't mean you're like omnipotent and capable of creating universes and stuff. It's Mm -hmm. you're, you're kind of like deluding yourself to make that statement that like, um, and it's, it's also like, 
it's also like philosophically kind of illogical that level of like absolute oneness that um the non it doesn't really yeah. uh, that like ultimately with like a completely non-dualistic philosophy like there's no room for the possibility of love and relationship and devotion because like who are you being devoted to that's that's you being devoted yeah, to you like why do you even why does like the whole reality even exist if it's already just one it's uh-huh. kind of there's a lot of unanswered questions with like monism and advaita vedanta but in any case so the the reason i brought this whole stuff up is because this whole way of exploring the bandhas and marmas um, is also like a way of directly experimenting with and meditating upon these subjects that there's um, there's like these three levels of engagement of the bandhas that correspond to these three like philosophical um, perspectives that like the the bandhas can be made of the marmas like becoming the bandha or like they can remain separate from one another or like the marmas form the bandha and then they still remain like discreet and unaffected by one another that they're independent mm. of each other and in in that way like it's kind of a direct um way of approaching and understanding and like really deeply examining these um philosophical differences through the asana practice by sure. by the utilization yeah. of the bandhas and marmas it's, follow, it's yeah. really kind of yeah it makes it very tangible to meditate upon because you know it actually really provides like a, a meditative purpose to the physical action of the asanas and right so yeah that's that's kind of really blown my mind like approaching the asanas in that way um you know especially like having just come into this method of practice after practicing for like 15 or 16 years up until that point like it really made me be like whoa i don't know anything about this (laughs) yoga stuff this is like yeah really uncharted interesting territory and uh it's it's really made like given me a whole deeper level of excitement about um being committed to practice and study and well, it's, I love it's that. It's been quite nourishing. Yeah, yeah. I, love, I love to hear that. I mean, it's. I think it's so important to find new ways. If if ever your practice becomes, starts to feel stale or stagnant, it's very important to find ways to reinvigorate yourself and and to study. You know, is is one of the most powerful ways to do that. Um, that's really interesting about you know this microcosm of the way that the bandhas and marmas relate to one another as. A representation yeah, it's, of, it's, of the it whole really picture. Is, it really is very fascinating. Yeah, and and you see this like once you start studying this Achinta Beta Beta Tattva, you like see it in everything in nature, like mm-hmm. this kind of inconceivable level of oneness and difference. You you see it in all kinds of in in everything you see in nature and everything you see in like the states of awareness. Like when as you approach meditation, you find really the same kind of levels where there's there's like difference and there's oneness and then there's like something transcendental to that some kind of meditative absorption Mm. uh and it's it so this kind of philosophy is it gets very deep you can go 
pretty deep with it. Yeah. The answer, the answer is the middle road. All right, Adam, I'm ready to move on to the final round of this interview, which is the prana round. So in this section, I'm going to ask you six rapid fire questions. Your answer okay. can be let's minimum one word, maximum one. Sentence. You're ready to go. Let's just let's do it. Okay, first okay. question. I I already got the answers. George <laughs> Clooney. That's the answer. You got, got it, you. you got it right. You got it right. Okay. 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 Let's In go. one word, why do you practice yoga? I'm trying to get a Pringles sponsorship. I want to get <laughs> sponsored by Pringles and Gatorade. <laughs> what is your favorite yoga pose and why? Uh uh, really like right now I've been really gravitating to a lot of hip openers cause I like suck really bad in that department. Uh, so yeah, that, that they've been like extra nice and there's a lot of room for me to work there. Cool. Uh, what's the single best cue or piece of advice that you've ever received from a teacher? Um, Saraswati Joyce told me in Mysore one time that I had to go get different pants because I was practicing in these like neon spandex, really raggedy looking shit my wife made. And, she didn't uh, like that. No, she was like, yeah, yeah, you got to do something about that. So I went to <laughs> an Indian store that had underpants and I asked what was their craziest pair of underpants and no joke in the middle of Mysore, they whipped out this box from under the counter that said crazy briefs on it. And like, I got this one pair that was like the most hideous, like grandma's curtains, like green, like, I don't even, I can't explain it. But yeah, that was a really good, good tip. Thanks a lot, Zara Swati. <laughs> and did she accept that? Did you come back to class with the? Yeah, the she was down. She was like, "Oh yeah, that's a, <laughs> okay." Now you're ready. Now you got the that gear. neon one. <laughs> yeah, now you're ready. Marichas in the D. Let's go. <laughs> okay, recommend one book, either modern or ancient, for our audience. I know you've already mentioned a couple, so you can Ooh, tell us those it's again. It's so hard to say anything other than the Srimad Bhagavatam. Um, okay. I, could... I really like especially love uh, Prabhupada's Bhagavad Gita as it is. If I have to pick one, it's it's really an impactful and, and masterful translation and, and commentary. So yeah. yeah, that's I'd have to go there. Okay. Is yoga for everyone? Uh yeah, whether people like it or not, they're doing it already. Whether mm-hmm. they're like fully aware of it, whether it's like a system for them. Uh you know, I, it's it's kind of unavoidable eventually for everybody. So, yeah, yeah. it's for everybody. <laughs> okay, last question. How can our audience get in touch with you and how can we support you in your dharma? Uh, um, well, uh, if you want to email me, it's adam at cinnamonsnail.com. Uh Otherwise, like we're all over social media with the cinnamon snail, but it's not not really the best way to get in touch with me personally. Um, we also have like a little Facebook page for the classes that we teach from our home. I don't know if I mentioned that, but I've, I've been teaching like a couple free classes a week for quite a while from our home in New Jersey. And people come out and, and take that class quite a lot. It's um, the Facebook page is called Yoga at Adam and Joey's house. And uh I I don't need any support with 
like my dharma. Like I just hope people like, I hope people who have like a relationship to a living guru, like treat it seriously and, and respect the way they're taught and, and approach their own practice. Like, um, in in a, a serious way where they're not like diluting it and mixing in stuff from here and there. That's I think that's the best thing for everybody. If if people like take very seriously the instruction of their guru and kind of um, approach it with some reverence. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's that's all. So everybody, if you want to taste some delicious hug foods made with nonviolent means, go to Cinnamon Snail. And if they want to come take your yoga class at your house with your wife, should they just message you on that Facebook page? Yeah, or, or people just show up. Um, my I teach two nights a week. My daughter teaches one night a week. And um, then a couple of our students like switch off teaching one night a week. Um, okay. So most nights, a lot of nights of the week, there's there's class at our home and some of some of my students come practice with me in the morning but you should definitely hit me up if you want to do that because it's early and it's not it changes sometime to time it's just like a vegan food truck so yeah it's like <laughs> you can find me in the bermuda triangle or in brigadoon adam you thank it. you so much for coming on and uh sharing some of your special time with your dogs in the woods with me i really appreciate it and Aww. i know our listeners will too so thank you thanks for having me dear henry have a super snappy rest of your day if you got something out of this episode if you like dharma talk and want to keep it going please do me a huge favor and subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. I know it's not the most convenient thing to do, but it makes all the difference in getting the show out there and more visible to other people who can benefit from it. And hey, if you've got feedback or ideas or you want to get in touch with me, you can do that on Instagram at Henry Wins. Otherwise, I'll talk to you next week. And until then, keep living your dharma.